you've survived another mass shooting. Thank you for listening to the Black Man with the Gun Show. This is the second biggest massacre since Wounded Knee Conflict on December 29th, 1870. I think I'll go back there in the future for some history. But this week, I want to give you some words of wisdom. How to handle the media after a conflict like this. Michael J. Woodland gives us some stuff about hunting as he learns something new from Johnny King. Also, some commentary from my friend Rob Morse. All this and more coming up next. Hi, my name is Reverend Ken Blanchard, the guy known as the black man with a gun. And this is the podcast of the African-American gun community, amplifying our voices with American history, sharing training, news and positive information for all America. Welcome to the show. It was tough for me to be positive this week because of the horrific events that happened in Las Vegas. On the night of October 1st, 2017, a man opened fire on a large crowd of concert goers on the Las Vegas Strip. 58 people died and another 489 were injured between 10 and 10.15 p.m. A 64-year-old guy from Mesquite, Nevada, fired hundreds of rifle rounds from his suite on the 32nd floor of the nearby Mandalay Bay Hotel. Sounded something like this. best service I can give to you, my friends and my brothers and sisters, and even my enemies, is to give you some wisdom. I don't want you to fall for the banana in the tailpipe. That's a phrase coming from Eddie Murphy. Morning, officers. What y'all, the second team? We're the first team. Yeah, we're not going to fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> it should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See, that's more natural for us. You've been hanging out with this dude too long. All right, for me, the banana in the tailpipe is to fall for the okie doke, to fall for the shell game, the switch and bait kind of thing. When gun control advocates get you and get you involved in an argument, when they get you on television, they get you on the radio, and you say crazy stuff. The whole bump fire thing, that's part of it as well. So here's some stuff, some ammunition for your mind. Almost immediately after a mass shooting, after a criminal attack, after a race fight, after something that bleeds and leads in the day's news media, you and I are going to be the first that's contacted. You need to be smarter about it. You need to be wiser about it. Here are 10 tips for the pro-gun person to do a better job when the mic is thrown in your face. The first thing, though, is you don't have to speak. You don't have to go on if you're not prepared, and you shouldn't if you're not pre- if you're not ready to go into battle with all guns of your mind blazing. See, your mind is your primary weapon. If you can't fight right now, 
disengage. You wouldn't go to a three-gun match or a pistol competition without your own firearm and your own ammo, would you? No, you wouldn't. So don't try to become an internet sensation, a superstar. Because most often when you try that, you fail. And you hurt not only yourself, your own image, all your credibility up to this point, but you hurt your community. Take it from your friend and your brother from another mother. It must have been 24 hours after the shooting in Las Vegas when my cell phone blew up. I got a call every 30 seconds for a good hour. Everybody wanted to hear my side. My answer, I am grieving. Can't talk right now. I am at work. Can't talk right now. And they went, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Is there anybody else we can get? Meaning, they really didn't care about me as a person. And they don't care about you either. They just need to fill a slot. So if you're not prepared, if your ammo is not tight, here's your 10 steps for being on point, on target, and defending the right to keep and bear arms like a boss. Before you open your lips, number one, know your objective. You shouldn't even think about giving an interview unless you decided on what you're going to say. Try to steer clear of that wishy-washy stuff just about raising awareness or enhancing understanding or getting some face time, saying that all publicity is good. It is not. Not where we're concerned. Not where you're concerned either. Number two, try to decide on just two or three key messages. One of the most common mistakes people make when they're starting to do a media interview is to think that it's simply a matter of answering questions. The questions are against you. They set you, set you up. You got to have your own stuff ready to go. Number three, make sure those key messages I was talking about can answer the journalist that's talking to you. So what test? Look at each of your responses from the journalist's point of view and then ask yourself whether they satisfy their need for a newsworthy story, one that is relevant to their audience. Will your message make that journalist say, so what? If there's any danger that they will, tear it up and start again. But it has to be relevant. It has to be on your terms, your objective, your messages. You only got a few minutes. Which brings me to point number four. Your message should be 10 words or fewer. Your two or three top line messages should be crisp, memorable, and succinct. They should just trip off the tongue without the journalist needing to interpret or summarize you. Number five of your compelling examples and evidence Make sure you have some good backup for it. Backup magazines are are a must, right? You got to have more ammo. So you got to have some killer facts and statistics. Have them so that they can visualize what you're saying. There's a reason that Jesus spoke in parables. You got to paint a picture of the mind. Sometimes people are just walking by the television and not watching you. They're just listening on podcasts, for example. So make sure they can understand by the theater of the mind. Number six is to structure your answers as message sandwiches. What I mean is get your message out in 10 words or fewer and then go straight into your example, backed up by some well-chosen facts or statistics. Then briefly repeat the message. The message sandwich is the best way of making your message unmissable. Number seven, bridge into your key messages. Few journalists will ask questions that merely invite you to impart your key messages. Most likely will have you in some awkward, hostile, or aggressive questions. 
The key here is to be prepped for it. There's no good going into an interview hoping that you won't be asked a question that you don't know. You you must assume that you will be asked it. The crazy question. You know, the stuff to get you off point. Do you still beat your wife is my favorite. Think about that one. Questions like that. The stuff about the bump stock. The questions that have no relevance or can't save a life in this instance. Be prepared for those. Here's a key, though. It's called the ABCs of interviewing. Answer the question. B, bridge. C, communicate your message. And then number eight, use the wise tone. You should be looking to communicate with W, warmth. I, intelligence. S, sincerity. You know, openness and honesty. And E, enthusiasm. Most people struggle with warmth and enthusiasm. And it's for a reason. They kind of put you in an awkward position when you're in interview anyway. To make themselves look better. But to achieve warmth and enthusiasm in spite of this mess, you can do two things. Keep your language as conversation as possible, free of formal terminology or jargon. Paint those mind pictures, those theories of the mind I was talking about. Wise, baby, wise. Warmth, intelligence, sincerity, and enthusiasm. Number nine, remember the vital importance of good body language. You can't rely only on content to communicate. Folks see you. Sometimes and judge you instantly. I know you know this, but a lot of communication is physical. If you tell the audience that you're excited, but you look and sound bored to tears, the audience will also feel bored to tears and will assume you are too. If you convey uncertain body language, you know, like poor eye contact or poor posture and a lack of vocal conviction, you're mumbling, you're hesitant, people are more likely to not trust you from that nonverbal cue. It's just reality. This is how it works. And finally, number 10, be yourself. The most successful interviewees, the ones that journalists want to interview over and over again, are authentic and natural. There is no act. They are themselves. And you can make a difference if you prepare. Just don't go into battle half-ass. I don't even know why I'm playing this, but I a little feel like Darth Vader. I'm breathing really heavy, and I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> oh, man, I love podcasting. And while I'm journeying through here free of charge, if you have a podcast that you want to start or you want somebody to take it over and edit it for you, or I can put some of my podcast magic to it, I got a business. It's called Ken Blanchard Consulting. Give me a jingle. We can talk about it. It can make you sound better than me. This portion of the show is brought to you by the United States Concealed Carry Association. The USCCA has been providing education, training, and self-defense insurance to responsibly armed Americans since 2003. Join Tim Schmidt and myself here at usconcealedcarry.com. This is from my friend and brother Rob Morse from his slowfacts.wordpress.com site. He writes, after Las Vegas, the gun grabbers are serious, but dishonest. A murderer 
killed innocent people in Las Vegas. This was a horrific attack that caught our attention and drew our sympathy. That is why the anti-rights spokesmen repeated their usual, ineffective proposals to disarm the people who didn't do it. The gun grabbers want to fill our opinions at a time when we feel empty and none of us have answers. The anti-rights spokesmen made their usual claims. If only we had background checks. And outlawed silencers. If only we had magazine restrictions. And closed the non-existent gun show loophole. If only we made hotels into gun-free zones. And outlawed assault weapons. None of these would change a thing. I wish they would, but the murderer passed background checks. Didn't use a silencer. Had plenty of ammunition and time to reload. Bought his guns legally. The hotel was already a gun-free zone where the good guys were disarmed. And he used a semi-automatic firearm of the type that has been in existence for over 60 years. The honest answer is that if we implemented these proposals, then this murder would have happened anyway. What is more, the recently attempted mass murder at a Tennessee church would have happened with these proposals in place. Even the attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, the most recent similar event, would have happened anyway. Why do the anti-rights advocates come up with these ineffective proposals since nothing they propose would change the outcome? The answer is inside us. Most of us are not used to horrific violence. I know I'm not. And that's a good thing. But it leaves us unprepared to deal with real violence when it happens. Violence leaves us groping for answers. We feel out of control. The anti-rights advocates say they know the way to peace after they tell us to kill all the NRA members. Their proposals are irrational, but they're not rational in a time of grief. We cling to any suggestion that sounds good. We will cling to nonsense as long as it pretends to make sense of our uncontrollable world. Here's is what we know would work to deter the next mass murderer. Refuse to publish the name and image of murderers. That would help stop the next attack. Put shatterproof plastic films on hotel glass windows. That's the same solution we now recommend for schools and churches. Mental health treatment works, and it helps. Armed security guards and armed civilians would help since the murderer killed himself as soon as he was confronted. That doesn't make horrific violence easier to deal with, but these actions would actually help prevent the next mass murder. Now you know. Thanks, Rob. This portion of the show is sponsored by CrossbreedHolsters.com. Crossbreed Holsters has gained national recognition as a maker of the best and most functional concealment holsters available on the market today. Each holster is handcrafted to ensure your firearm is safe and secure while carrying, combined with the best customer service in the industry. Visit CrossbreedHolsters.com. All right, next up, my friend and brother Michael. Take it away, brother. Thank you, Ken, and welcome to another Tips and Review segment. I am Michael Woodland, and today we're going to talk with Johnny King about hunting. Like anything else we do in life, we have to be responsible in all our actions. Getting proficient with your shots 
are very important, especially with the first shot. A couple weeks ago, Johnny King and myself had a conversation in regards to hunting. He volunteered to teach me what it takes to get started with hunting. Sounds uh, good, and thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem, man, no problem. Um, the other day we had went out and you had showed me a couple things in the wood, some basic stuff as far as um, the tree stand, um, the bait spots, um, what to look for as far as um, the terrain and how animals walk, or deer specifically, walking the terrain. But um, let me ask you, what got you interested in hunting? Well, it, it kind of came at the same time when I started getting into firearms in general. Um, I, it was kind of a uh, something that, that sparked my attention was watching the news, and I saw how uh, this was during the uh, 2008 election. The news was saying about how uh, guns and ammo were flying off the shelves, and you know they had shortages of, uh, of firearms, shortages of ammo, and so I was like, well, what in the world is going on? I don't know, but I, whatever it is, I think I need to prepare for it too. So then I started getting into guns and then that kind of led me down the path of prepping. And a part of prepping is, um, being able to have an independent food source. And so that is kind of what led me down the path of hunting. So, um, it was kind of something that I had always wanted to give a try to before, but nothing that I really, um, actively pursued until that, that point. So as soon as I had it in my mind that I wanted to try it out, I went to the um, to the uh, hunters education course that South Carolina DNR Department of National Resource Natural Resources provided, and um, took the hunters education course, and kind of went from there. So now the other day I had asked you um, a question, but I want to ask it again so the audience is aware of it. Um, how should I get ready, and what do I bring? when I go out to hunt? In order to get ready, I would suggest, I would definitely suggest taking the state provided hunter's education course. That's going to provide you with a, a level of um, safety rules and regulations and introduce you to the, um, to the expectations of how to do, how to hunt lawfully and how to hunt legally going to give you some tips on um, what the better calibers are to use. In fact, which calibers are lawful, which calibers are not lawful. Um, the, when I took the, the course, um, the guy who taught it, he was very, very into it. Like you could tell this guy had been hunting for probably the past 30 years of his life. So he was, he was giving all kinds of tips on what to do when you're out there in, in, the, um, in the woods and, and all that. As for gear, um, number one, bring a good brain. <laughs> There's nothing, no piece of gear better than your own brain. Um, some sense when you go out there uh, to be safe, to um, have some knowledge of what it is that your objective is while you're out there. And I would suggest definitely bring a flashlight or two, a good knife. Um, some rope, a compass, and maybe a way to, to make fire. Because in the worst case scenario, if you are tracking or stalking a deer and you find yourself lost, you want to have a compass to be able to find your way out 
or a way to make fire to signal for help, or you may have to spend the night in the woods. So having a flashlight and having um, a knife makes it a lot easier for you to uh, to survive the night or to at least um, until you're able to find for someone to find you. Okay. Now, the, um, also the other day when we was talking, you had mentioned something in regards to um, tags. Um, can you explain to me what tags are for the deer or what do you do with the tags? Sure thing. Um, the tagging system is, is actually new to South Carolina, but um, it's, it's based on an older principle, which is, uh, and I hate to say it, but it's kind of a racket where they're just making you pay for the deer that you're going to harvest. Um, but it's a way for them to keep the deer population strong and uh, not over overhunted. And they actually send you physical tags for you to mark the deer that you hunt before you leave the woods with them. So at the beginning of the season, they'll send you um, a set of tags. For here in South Carolina, they'll send you three buck tags, which are antlered deer, which means that you can take three antlered deer for the season um, lawfully. If you want to, to take more than that, then you you have to purchase more deer tags, more antlered deer tags. Um, on the... On the other on the other side of it, you'll have antler you'll have antlerless antlerless deer tags, and those um, you get five antlerless deer tags for the season. Those are your does and your fawns. Now you shouldn't shoot a fawn or you shouldn't harvest a fawn simply because you want to allow, allow them to grow up and become a mature doe or a mature buck that way they can reproduce and create more deer um but it, it's not unlawful for you to to harvest the fawn but the antlerless the antlerless tags um correspond to fawns and does and if you want more of the oh, i'm sorry those tags are for specific dates meaning that you cannot harvest a antlerless deer for a day that's outside of the tag that you're using. So you've got the tags for antler deers and for um, and for antlerless deers. And basically what they do is they indicate to any game warden that the deer that you are taking out of the woods has been harvested lawfully. Got you, got you. All right, well, like I said, I do appreciate your time tonight. And um, I think... I'm looking forward to the next um, set of instructions that you give when we go out again. I'm looking forward to taking you out there. Hopefully, we'll get the chance to harvest a, a deer for you, you know, before before the next show. But I can tell you, it's called hunting. It's not called catching. So one big thing is that you got to be patient. I've been um, out in the season for about 30 days now, and I still have not harvested one. And I'm out there pretty much every weekend. It's it's not it's not like going fishing where you're you know casting a line in there and you're pulling something out every five minutes. We may go out there and sit for a couple hours, and you may get absolutely nothing. But the one thing that you will get is some peace and quiet in the woods, which I also like that. Got you. All right. Well, like I said, um, next time we go out, we'll do this again, and um, we'll be looking out for you next time. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, my man. Thanks for having me.
There you have it. We will have another conversation with Johnny King in a few weeks. For those who are looking to contact me, visit blackmanwiththegun.com under the Leaders tab and click on my name, Michael Woodland, and shoot me an email. Until next week, keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Johnny. Johnny actually talked to me, so we'll be having a new person coming to the Black Man with a Gun show on a regular, I hope, talking about hunting and the shooter 2.0. Blessed I am. Happy to facilitate family. You know, Groucho Marx said, there's only two things you can start without a plan, a riot and a family. For everything else, you need a plan. That's some wise stuff right there. Hey, motivation check. Do you like this show? Did you find some worth in at least one thing somebody said so far? If you did, you can motivate me by being a sponsor of this podcast. You can give whatever you think is worth once a month at patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. That's patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. Become an awesome supporter for next month. Thank you. One of the things that occurred to me during this week of all the um, hoopla over Facebook, all the negative posts, all the crazy talk, is that I am hardwired a little bit different than most. I care about people. Death comes to all of us, eventually. Sometimes suddenly with little or no warning. Other times at the end of a long or serious illness. It has been said that death is a normal part of life. As a pastor, as Patriots, Pistoleros, and Paladins, it's my privilege to be here to help those who need it. And because of that, that pull on my life has been stronger this week than in a long time. So I've created something different that I want to share with you. Do you want a new podcast to listen to? Check out my new one. It's called Speak Life. It's a must listen for every man and woman who wears a badge, owns a gun, hunts, or believes that freedom is life's first right. Speak Life podcast is going to give you what you missed, make you smarter, give you less stress, less fear, and more faith in God. The same God folks are trying hard to trivialize, marginalize, and misunderstand. Speak Life podcast, now available on iTunes. And if you like that, check out BlanchardMinistries.com as I'm working on that too. That's it for this week. And I just want to say you got a brother here. If you need to talk to somebody, I'm right there. All right. Shout out and thanks to Johnny King and Michael J. Woodland and you, my friend, brother and sister, for being a part of my life. We're in this together. We can make it if we try. Just in case nobody has told you this today, I love you. And it's not a damn thing you can do about it. Until next week. Shalom, baby.